Hi everyone, welcome to the No Time to Read podcast. This is your host Arif Ashraf. I'm a plant biologist and in every episode I'm going to invite the lead author of a recently published plant biology article to share the story behind the paper. As audience, your goal is to tune into that episode so you don't have to read the paper. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the season two, episode five of our No Time to Read podcast. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Arabidopsis root cell atlas paper. This paper was actually published in Developmental Cell. So in today's episode, we'll try to understand what is the use of the cell atlas and what we can learn from the cell atlas. And to talk all about these things, we are very happy to have uh, Rachel Shahan with us. Rachel is a postdoc at Duke University. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. We'll be very happy if you tell us briefly about your first. Thank you so much, Reef. It's really nice to meet you. It's really fun. I'm very happy to be on the podcast. It's a fantastic resource for the community, for postdocs like you and me and graduate students. Um, so I began my journey in plant biology very early, I would say, um, and that's because I have a lot of agricultural experience. So I spent a lot of time in high school and college working on farms and sometime, sometime uh, in that process while I was, you know, in digging around in the dirt, I realized that plants are so cool because they can make new organs. How do they do that? They grow up from a seed to a seedling to an adult. And somehow, unlike you or I, they're able to make a totally new organ and do it continuously. So I was fascinated by that. really loved science. Um, I decided that grad school was going to be for me. I was really going to understand how this happens. So I, um, uh, I went to grad school at the University of Maryland. My PhD advisor was Zhangqi Liu. So I was using um, a new model system, actually, which is strawberry. So it's a diploid strawberry for Gary Avesca to try to understand how uh, fruit forms. So if you have a flower, it has lots of different organs, the strawberry fruit forms from the receptacle, which is where essentially all the flower parts attach to the stem. So how does that actually come to be? And strawberry is a particularly useful model if you wanna study fruit development because the seeds are on the outside. So if you're curious uh, to understand as we were, how uh, different hormones, namely auxin, uh, contribute to how the fleshy fruit develops, this is a great model system. So for me, I did a lot of work with some RNA-seq data, so, so very carefully, um, RNA-seq data from very carefully dissected different parts of the flower and fruit to try to understand what transcription factors, what processes are important for both flower and fruit developments. The end of my PhD, I was started to really get excited about cells. So how how does a cell cell get an identity? It makes up all these important tissues and structures, but how do all the different cells come to be? So for that reason, I decided to join Philip Benfi's lab because the Arabidopsis fruit is such a beautiful model to try to think about how individual cells differentiate and acquire distinct characteristics. So I joined Philip's lab in 2018, and I've been a postdoc uh, ever since. Awesome. That's a great introduction. Actually, when I was reading about your previous work, I uh, came across that strawberry paper. That is a pretty interesting. I was not aware about that. And I agree with you about Arabidopsis root system. This is a pretty fantastic system for the developmental biologists. So Rachel, about this paper, like um, we all the time think that there are so many Arabidopsis root paper. We feel like we know a lot, of, a lot about root, but actually in practicality, you don't know much. So what sort of the background uh, we should know to understand this paper uh, first. 
Yeah, so I'll give you a little, just a brief background for everybody um, about why the root is really a fantastic model. I touched on that um, a little bit. So if you think, if you think about the root in your mind, we all know kind of what a root looks like. At the tip of the root, there's a stem cell niche. So what's really exciting is that the that stem cell niche is active throughout the whole life of the root, continues dividing. But since the root or since plant cells, as we all know and appreciate, are really bounded by this cell wall, the cells don't move relative to each other. So if you're like me and you're super excited about how does a cell become a specific type of cell, the root's a great model because you can actually look along the entire longitudinal axis from the tip all the way up towards the shoot, and you can visually see this whole suite or lineage of cells from the youngest all the way up until the oldest. So it's a really fantastic opportunity to study all of these different cell types. Um, many, there are many tools available to visualize different markers, and you can really try to understand lineage developments. Um, does that answer your question? Is there any more about root yeah. developments you're curious about? <laughs> Uh, no, I think that's that's a very good introduction, I should say. Uh, so at, when you started this project, uh, we tried to understand like what was the initial questions uh, that actually uh, like put uh, some curiosity to start this project. Yeah. Okay. So this also relates to your previous question. I will maybe answer both of them at the same time. Okay. And I'll give this as an anecdotal. <laughs> what actually sure. happened? It's always different from the paper, right? What actually happened? Exactly. So for me, uh, when I joined Philips lab, what I was really interested in was the cell type, the endodermis. And mm -hmm. I think probably people here, the Benfi lab, postdocs and grad students and Philip himself talk about the endodermis a lot. And the reason for using the endodermis as a model is because it's very easy to tell different, like differentiated characteristics of this particular cell type. So it has the Casparian strip, which is easy to stain. You can very easily tell if endodermis is developing correctly, essentially. So a prior graduate student in the lab who, and my friend, Colleen Trepek, before I joined, she created this amazing uh, system where she was able to create uh, or, or um, uh, reprogram cells to acquire endodermal identity. So a question that came out of her work and a question I was thinking about is how are gene regulatory networks that we already know about in the endodermis, how are they connected to each other? So there's one that's functioning in, in the very tip of the root near that stem cell niche. And there's one that's we already know about that's in the more differentiated zone of the root, creating that Casparian strip. But what happens in the middle? There's a lot of cells in the middle there. How are they connected? Uh, what's what are the important regulators in between those two things? So for me, when I joined the lab, I had a bunch of grand plans. And one of them, since single cell RNA sequencing was really coming on the scene at the time. It's really exciting. That seemed like a perfect opportunity to look at this question. So I want to look at the cell lineage. I want to know what's happening in two different places along the developmental timeline of this particular cell type. Excellent. We will use single cell RNA-seq. So we developed a protocol in the lab to do that. Um, we were aided, of course, by many uh, other groups who were fantastic, shared their resources for how to protoplast, how to do single cell RNA sequencing. Very appreciative of the Schiffelbein lab in particular for helping us uh, with the single cell RNA sequencing protoplasting prep. Um, but we realized, or I realized along the way, even though I was interested in the endodermis, it's a fantastic cell type, there are lots of other fantastic cell types in the roots. And I had the choice of either doing single cell RNA sequencing on all root cells. So we protoplast, we isolate the cells from just the whole root, 
or I could do that and then walk two buildings over in 90 degree heat to the fax machine to isolate <laughs> endodermis cells. So because I wasn't lazy, but, you know, I was just efficient. <laughs> I decided maybe we would try on, on the whole route first. And after right. we did that and, and really um, optimized our protocol, it was really beautiful to see when we started integrating our data, these beautiful continuous trajectories of cells, even in 2D space. We just look at our data in 2D. You can see young cells leading all the way to old cells. And I'm really glad that it worked out this way. I think having all of the different cell types, all of these opportunities to look at more than just endodermis is an exciting opportunity for us. And also I hope a, a useful resource for the community. Yeah, fantastic. Actually, the reason I like this paper because it took advantage of the cutting edge technique, like the single cell, and also combined the uh, developmentally very nice uh, organ, like the root, uh, come together. So at this point, like we want to understand or know, like what are the take home messages of the key things we should learn from your paper? Yeah, um, perfect. Excellent question. So I think the what I just mentioned briefly here is I, I really hope this is a fantastic resource for other people to use to analyze their own data sets. So we put in a huge amount of work to try to annotate this atlas, all the different cell types, different developmental stages. So I hope this is useful for other people working on roots, obviously the Arabidopsis route that'll be most useful in, in taking all the work we did from this big data set to, to annotate other data sets. And in particular, one thing um, that I think is most exciting is using this data set to to help annotate mutant data sets. So we did this in, in our paper. That's one of the things that I was most excited about is I looked at um, single cell RNA sequencing data for two um, very well-known uh, transcription factor mutants. And, and those are, that is, bleh, that is <laughs> short root and scarecrow. So those both have problems with endodermal identity, um, ground tissue, the endodermis is part of the uh, tissue called the ground tissue, that development. So in I, my goal initially it, with profiling these mutants was to try to understand, could this big data set be useful for annotating a small data set with many fewer cells? So in addition to confirming that we saw the phenotypes that we expected, both the cell identity and the tissue composition phenotypes in these two mutants, we also found some things that we didn't expect. And the main thing that I was interested in is that in the scarecrow mutants, using this analysis, using our annotations from the big atlas, I could see in the data very clearly that there appeared to be a cell identity change in what we call the mutant layer. So that's what happens when you don't get this proper ground tissue, you get a single mutant layer. Uh, we've known for some time that that seems to have a mixed identity of two different cell types. Mm -hmm. With a single cell RNA-seq data, with looking at these nice developmental trajectories, you could really see that that ground tissue layer of cells, file of cells, seems to start out as one identity and seem to acquire another identity as the cells got older. We were able to show just using markers uh, in vivo, using confocal imaging, that that is indeed uh, the case, at least with several known markers. And I think this is an exciting opportunity to think about how does cell identity change. In plants, they're really incredible because cells can change their identity in, in uh, regeneration, for example. So how do they do that? So how do they forget their old identity? How do they acquire a new one? I think these are exciting questions that I at least would like to answer. And then secondly, how what's the what's the big takeaway from this um, paper is right. something that we, we did is to try to think about um, what are the transcription factors in the wild type route, in the wild type atlas, that push 
each cell to acquire a specific identity or specific fate. And in order to try to address that question, we partnered with Jeff Schiebinger, who has his lab at the University of British Columbia. He's a mathematician. So he's developed an optimal transport-based method um, to try to recapitulate developmental trajectories from single-cell RNA sequencing data. So essentially, all that that means is he's able, or he has a technique, where we try to walk through the single-cell RNA sequencing data to connect very young cells to cells that are a little bit older to cells that are a little bit older until you go all the way through the developmental trajectory. So the advantage of using this approach is every cell gets assigned a probability of what cell of a cell fate. So for all the cell types in the Rhabdopsis root, every cell from our data set is assigned the probability of what it will become. So using that probability data together with the gene expression data, of course, our collaborators from Jeff's lab were able to do a regression. So in that regression, it's able to identify genes that likely push cells towards a specific identity. And we were able to identify, thankfully, we're very happy to see known transcription factors for all the cell types, sure. suggesting that this is a, a good method. And then what we're working on in the lab now, I, I think this is really exciting. It's a fantastic opportunity to use this data to move forward. Is we do indeed, after uh, address or after looking at or knocking out some of these uh, candidate transcription factors, there are indeed um, some really cool phenotypes uh, that we are following up on. So I hope that also that that is useful not only for root researchers if you see your favorite cell type looking for new genes to test out, but also for, for other data sets, for anyone else interested in development, how might you use optimal transport, uh, a different method for other than pseudotime inference, for example. Hopefully that will be useful for others. Yeah, that, that, that's great. And also I would uh, like to mention that because it is very easily accessible. And uh, when the paper came out, uh, including our lab, I know we are just checking our favorite genes on that data set, so, which is really helpful for the community. So uh, you kind of touched that there is a huge implication coming up and you guys are following on that. So if you tell us uh, what are the what is after this paper, like what are the, some major questions can be answered utilizing your this paper? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I touched already on talking about using single cell RNA sequencing in the ATLAS to inform mutant, developmental mutants uh, data sets. So asking um, what types of cell identity changes might you see, tissue composition changes, for example, anything else that you might be interested in a mutant. I think this is a really powerful approach to understand and probe mutant phenotypes in a way that we really haven't been able to do before. So I think that's very powerful. Um, in addition to that, we're also in the lab, um, me and others, uh, there are many people, many fantastic people in the lab working on single cell RNA sequencing. We're thinking about how we might use the ATLAS and single cell RNA-seq to inform time course data sets. Right. So a time course is really advantageous, for example, if you want to look or if you want to treat your sample in some way, if you want to uh, have an environmental stimulus or treat with a hormone. So Trevor Nolan, who's a postdoc in the lab, he has used the Atlas in order to annotate his breast and a steroid treatment time course, which is out mm. now as a preprint. So I right. think that that is really exciting to be able to look at perturbations at a single cell level. This is something, again, from a omics level data set that maybe we haven't been able to really look at before. And I hope the Atlas uh, and our methodologies are useful for others, depending on what sort of treatment or, or perturbation that you're interested in. Um, we are also interested not only in treating with something, but how does how do roots change as they age? What happens over time, we think of the root as a static thing. I said that at the beginning, right? The root mm -hmm. is a developmental timeline. You always have the cells from the beginning to the end. 
But we, we do know that the morphology of the root changes over time. Um, you know, for example, there's a new ground tissue layer. Um, so we're interested in trying to understand how does gene expression, how do the dynamics change uh, over time, and how does that affect the morphological changes in the root? That is excellent. I think the follow-up, that time is a great dimension. So I think that will take the things to the next level for sure. Yeah. So Rachel, uh, most of the audience is for this podcast is basically like grad student postdoc. So we'll try to understand the review process. Um, so if you take uh, some time to tell us uh, what was your experience when you were publishing through the review process and what exactly changed uh, from the preprint to the published form. Yeah, so so this there was a very long journey, I would say, actually, with publishing this paper. Um, so I, I will share that the some of the data that we got for the paper, I I literally got the sequencing results as Duke was shutting down with COVID nineteen. So oh, this no. was a very this was a very interesting time. Um, we really couldn't get in the lab to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So we we did publish a preprint uh, early on in uh, in twenty twenty actually. Um, Okay. So looking at sort of a first a first analysis of, of this data. So in compared to the initial preprint that we submitted um, and compared to the final version of the paper, quite a few things changed. Um, so that we had some fantastic reviewers who really pushed us, I would say, to think about our data harder, to explain it more clearly, um, and to, to do uh, more experiments in vivo, of course, which is absolutely necessary um, uh, to think about what does this data mean and what hypotheses can we generate and how can we test them. So we, just a few examples, we um, worked harder on annotating the data. So we have a, a more detailed annotation. We tried different methods to annotate the data. So that is in the, the final version. We also, the collaboration that I mentioned with Jeff Sheepinger, where we thought about optimal transport and how to recapitulate developmental tra trajectories that also happened in response to some of the reviews where we were really challenged to think harder. How, do, how can we identify important transcription factors? How do we take advantage of this big data set with all of these different cell types? Um, so that was something that we, we really thought about and tried to apply a new method and think about how to use those results to inform both the wild type atlas and then also the mutant data sets. Uh, and then, of course, um, after the first round of your review, that's when, at the same time, I was going in and really looking in vivo. I mentioned this identity change in the scarecrow mutant. That, of right. course, was very important, um, mm. but naturally, to, to look at some of these results in vivo. Um, so we did, of course, include that in the final revised version of the paper. So our experience here was that we we put something up by our archive. We really hoped that the data the data was released all the way at the beginning. We really hoped it would be helpful for the community, and then we did really work very hard over another year to to add more to the paper, to think harder about it, to try to clarify it so that it was as useful as possible. I can totally see that it was a long journey in the publication. So I have a small question, like oftentimes when you uh, study or uh, do some cutting edge thing, there is a pressure or competition to for the publication. Uh, did you feel that thing that the other lab might go to the same direction and you need to take keep the paper out soon? Yeah, definitely. There was a bit of that. So single cell RNA-seq is, is really exciting. There are lots of people who are getting into it. And the root, I think, lends itself very well to single cell RNA sequencing um, for the ease of access. We know how to protoplast it. That's been established for a long time. There are many cell type specific markers, which really uh, that's not the case for other organs and especially right. in other species. So I think that this is really a good 
starting place. Um, absolutely. So there's there certainly was a feeling of of worry um, and concern, but I uh, I hope that moving forward, certainly after providing an atlas, a data set here, we can really all start testing different hypotheses, different and and studying different things. I think that it really opens up a big world here. Um, that, yeah. uh, actually, the, my question uh, came uh, recently. I saw like the molecular plant doing like the single cell specialization. I was just feeling, okay, what if I'm doing a single cell atlas at the same time some other people are doing? If they publish before me, uh, so that's why that question came to my mind. I understand. Uh, I have one one thing to say with that. It was a piece of advice that I received from someone. Just to, maybe this will ameliorate how you feel a little bit. Someone told me once when I was worried, like, oh, what if my ideas are not good enough? What if I don't have unique ideas? she told me everybody's mind works differently your mind and my mind we all think differently we all have different creative ideas and we approach problems from different ways so yeah of course it's always you know we always want to be the first to publish something or we always you know are worried about other people taking our ideas but we can always think of think in a different way and presents our ideas or test different hypotheses so I don't know if that helps at all um, that's what I'm trying trying to use as my mantra going forward so at this point, we know that there are many people involved in this project, and uh, some people are very instrumental to keep going this project. So if you want to acknowledge uh, someone uh, for this project, please go ahead and do that. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of important people who are involved in this. So firstly, I would acknowledge uh, Philip, my advisor, who's a fantastic scientist, but also a really wonderful mentor. Um, he's been super supportive. And I think that my career has really benefited from being a postdoc in his lab. And in addition, in the lab, um, the single cell RNA sequencing, getting it up and running off the ground and figuring out how to use the machine, it's really been a group effort. So I absolutely want to acknowledge Isaiah Taylor and Trevor Nolan, who are also two postdocs in the Benfi lab. It really helps to uh, get the protoplasting, you know, working for single cell RNA-seq, getting, getting the entire process um, up and running. Um, so I, I really could not have done it without them. Um, Chewei Xu, who was formerly a graduate student in Uwe Oler's lab and also the co-first author uh, on this work. He's now a brand new postdoc in the Benfi lab, so he was really instrumental in analyzing the data and figuring out all of the pipelines. I really owe him a huge debt of gratitude. He's a really fantastic scientist. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge Ben Cole, who is at the uh, Joint Genome Institute, LBNL. So he was really a wonderful collaborator with thinking about how to uh, annotate this data set. I really enjoyed uh, working with him, and as well as all the other members of the Benfi Lab for their support and help throughout this entire project. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time. Uh, this is fantastic. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, we'll come back with another paper in the next episode.